Welcome to the Ashoka Systems Change Podcast, a new six-part podcast series from Ashoka, the world's largest network of social entrepreneurs. My name is Fergal Barron, and together with Odin Mullenbein, lead of the systems unit at Ashoka Globalizer, we explore some of the key ideas and approaches used by social entrepreneurs to achieve systems change. In these interviews, we discuss key dimensions of systems thinking, like approaches to collaboration, leadership, and crucially funding, through the experience of Ashoka Changemakers, working as systems entrepreneurs. I'm very pleased today to welcome Jordan Kasselau to the Ashoka Systems Change podcast. Jordan is a successful social entrepreneur, the founder of Vision Spring, an organization that works to provide affordable access to eyewear everywhere and eliminate poor vision due to the lack of eyeglasses, the largest disability in the world. So welcome to the podcast, Odin. Hi, good to be here. Uh, very much looking forward to talking to Jordan. I just wanted to get a little bit of an overview, maybe in advance, of what you find interesting about Jordan's work, uh, particularly from a systems perspective. We wanted to start the series with an entrepreneur who experienced the limits of just growing a social venture firsthand. Uh, Jordan founded Vision Spring, which became one of the most successful social enterprises globally. So why would he change his strategy at that point? because he realized that he could achieve even more with a systems approach. Jordan's second venture tackles the same social problem as the first, but in a very different way. I think these differences are a great introduction to what systems change really means in terms of strategy, partnerships, leadership, and funding. Before we start, I would like to iterate our disclaimer from the introduction episode. The point of this podcast series is to motivate a few more social entrepreneurs and funders to work on a systems level. That doesn't mean that we should stop helping people in need directly. The world needs both hospitals and schools and organizations like Vision Spring, as well as initiatives that focus on the systems level like iLines. So with that in mind, I'm looking forward to hearing the interview. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Fergal. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. Excellent. Excellent. So can you maybe set the scene a little bit, Jordan, and your career, your background and how you decided to set up Vision Spring, what that is about a little bit and your movement towards iAlliance? Sure. The impetus of starting Vision Spring was just the observation as an eye doctor who had the opportunity to work in underdeveloped countries that most of the effort within our community was going to preventing blindness due to cataracts and river blindness and trachoma and these more complex medical and surgical interventions. Meanwhile, the leading cause of visual impairment in the world was just that people needed a simple pair of eyeglasses and no one was really addressing that issue. And wherever I was, whether it was working in South America the African continent or the Asian continent, I kept observing all of the efforts on these medical interventions, whereas most of the people who were presenting were presenting because they just needed a simple pair of eyeglasses so they could see to learn or see to work. And so uh, that's when I decided to move from working on river blindness, which is a terrible infectious disease of the eye, to focusing my attention on corrected refractive errors, which is a fancy way of saying people who need a pair of eyeglasses. Right. Now, when did you set that up? And can you talk a little bit about where you got to and where Vision Spring is today and how iAlliance, this project, grew out of that? 
So started Vision Spring about 17 years ago now. And the original concept of Vision Spring was based on two observations from the field. One was that there were a huge number of people who needed just a simple pair of reading glasses. So not just eyeglasses, but even the simplest type of eyeglasses, non-prescription reading glasses. About half the people in the world who need glasses need the kind of glasses that you or I can walk into a corner pharmacy or shopping center and buy for a few dollars as a consumer product off the shelf. And observing that that product was not available to most people in the world and that it had a terrible impact on their ability to continue their livelihoods. So as people reached their 40s and 50s and their near vision started to fail, they would often lose their ability to work as weavers and tailors and barbers and even farmers who needed their up-close vision to thrive. So that was one observation. The other was that in those same communities, there were huge numbers of people who were underemployed or unemployed, particularly women. And so the original concept of Vision Spring was, why can't we just match those two needs? One is the need for livelihoods, and the other is a need for a product that extends livelihoods and start an organization to basically provide women with job opportunities, selling simple eyeglasses to their neighbors who needed them to continue their work. That was the original idea around Vision Spring. And again, we started it about 17 years ago in India. We started it with 18 women entrepreneurs. And over time, that has grown significantly. We now have over 30,000 vision entrepreneurs around the world. And we have expanded that service into now prescription eyeglass services, and we have five or six different methods of distribution beyond the original concept of a vision entrepreneur. We have a wholesale business. We have some retail businesses, albeit that's quite small. We have um, businesses that uh, now work in pharmacies, providing pharmacies with eyeglasses. We go into factories, and we have a large part of our business working with factories and other lines of business. And this year, in 2019, we'll sell about 1.4 million pair of glasses through all of those different channels. And collectively, we've reached close to 6 million people now. Right. So 6 million, that's a tremendous result. So by many, many dimensions, many measures, a very successful operation with considerable impact over a sustained period of time. Now, you have put together this I Alliance. Can you talk a little bit about this? how you felt it was important to take a systems approach, to take a more systems approach. What were some of the signs, I guess, in Vision Spring that there was more potential, more you could be doing? And can you just talk a little bit about the decision that you made and how you were looking at things at the time? Well, I think it's important to note to the listeners the scale of the problem that we're trying to address. Just to give people a sense of the scale, there are over 1.3 billion people in the world who are visually impaired or blind because they need a simple pair of eyeglasses. And although we are at Vision Spring extremely proud that we've reached 6 million and we're on a runway of reaching you know, a million and a half people a year this year, and that will grow, we recognize that held against a billion plus person problem, we needed to figure out how to really accelerate our scale and impact. And I also realized in working with Vision Spring that the problem Although we will continue to address an important part of it and provide lessons that are critical to the ecosystem, that there was no one organization, whether it was a small social enterprise or a multi 
billion dollar private sector company that was going to be able to solve this problem in its entirety on its own. And so started to think about looking at how to solve this problem in its entirety. There have been other global health problems in our space even, like river blindness and trachoma, that have taken this sort of system change approach to looking at the problem in its entirety. And then how do you mount an effort that is in keeping with solving the problem in its entirety? So the first bit of information that people have to know is if you're going to solve a big problem that affects tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people, most likely you're going to need to set up some kind of uh, system change approach because there's no one enterprise that's going to be able to solve the problem on its own. So that's the first thing I would say. The genesis of Alliance came from our thinking at Vision Spring. At that time, I was working with the whole team and I was being pressed by one particular team member by the name of uh, Liz Smith, who was in the development department of Vision Spring. Just try to think about, you know, how do you solve this problem in a bigger way? You know, we're just chipping away at the edges. You know, if you can take your skills and contacts and solve it in a bigger way, what would you do? And in pressing me to think about that, I had started to uh, come up with some ideas. We came up with ideas together and over a course of a few years, created the alliance, the concept of the alliance and spun out of Vision Spring after about six or eight months of being incubated here. Right. And what is that? And what are your aspirations there, Jordan? So the idea there was that in order to solve this problem, we needed to find multiple solutions to the problem. Vision Spring had some really important solutions, but there were others that needed to be brought into the, uh, into the fold. We also recognized that we needed to engage governments and private sector, that if you look at giant problems, there really is no giant problem that's ever been solved by one NGO, that in order to solve problems at scale, generally you need to bring the private sector and the public sector in. And so the original idea of the Alliance was to take a lot of the successful models that had been created by the eye care NGO space, Vision Spring being one of them. There were other members in our community like Helen Keller International and Sightsavers International and Christoph and Blinder Mission and Brian Holden and a private sector company called Essilor and many others who had wonderful solutions to solving the problem of uncorrected vision and the need for glasses, but they weren't coordinated in any way. And they weren't, most importantly, embedded into larger systems uh, so that the governments and the private sector could take up those innovations and scale them through their channels, which was really what the Alliance was all about. Right. Now, I guess for many uh, entrepreneurs and certainly for social entrepreneurs, one's natural instinct is to, you know, you have a successful model would be to scale it up and to say, listen, you know, we've hit this kind of target this year, one and a half, next year, five, following year, 10, you know, very growth oriented, hitting targets and scaling. Why did you not decide to do that? And why was that thinking, do you think, inappropriate? I guess, what were the limitations of taking that kind of approach to this problem, would you say? Right. At Vision Spring, we are still doing that to some degree, although we also, as an organization, are starting to think more system changey within the context of our own organization. But uh, doing that exclusively, it was just clear that that was not the path to solving the problem in its entirety. And to get more ambitious and to solve the problem for hundreds of millions or even billions of people, it was going to require bringing in partners in the public and private sector rather than just relying on our own channels of scale. So it was just a practical 
decision to say, if your job, if our goal is to solve the problem rather than to grow our organization, then you start thinking differently. And for me personally, my North Star has always been to try to solve the problem because it's a problem that has real consequences, that we see children falling out of school every day because they can't see the blackboard. We see adults who are living at the bare minimum of subsistence who are falling out of the workforce and whose farms are failing because they can't detect the right pests on their leaves. And so there's real consequences to us not scaling. And so we wanted to uh, accelerate the ability to scale and we wanted to keep that North Star of solving the problem front and center rather than our particular solution or in growing our slice of the pie. And even within the many years of iteration at VisionSpring, that was also something that we held dear to us is that we had many different iterations of solving the problem and we didn't necessarily fall in love with any of our solutions. We fell in love with solving the problem and our solutions often went by the wayside if they weren't getting us to our ultimate aim. And so taking the system change approach again is really focusing on what's it going to take to solve the problem in its entirety. Who are the cast of actors who are going to need to be brought together to coordinate and in a concerted way to address all the different aspects of the problem? Because these problems are complex and they're multivariant. And so they need to have a very complex and multivariant approach. When you set up iAlliance, the kind of goals you were looking for here that you set for this Coming from a Sarah, more of a mainstream, you know, social entrepreneurship background, when you start to look at systems and thinking about systems, can you talk about a few of the key systems that you identified and what kinds of specific changes you have set out to achieve here? Yes, we're working across a number of different systems. One big system that we're trying to influence and work through is the system of the global development community. Before iLiance, the idea of uncorrected vision, uncorrected refractive error, the need for glasses, was nowhere on the global development agenda. And as a result, governments, large foundations, private sector players in general were not paying at all attention to it. Here was a problem that, again, affected billions of people and had about $37 million of investment going toward it. It represents 50% of the visual impairment in the world, whereas a disease like river blindness represents about 1% of the visual impairment and was allocated billions of dollars to solve. So it was just disproportionately underrepresented. And so one of the systems that we're looking to change was the global development system to put this issue on the agenda and to give it the recognition that it requires and deserves. And so that's one whole aspect of our work. Yes. Well, can you talk about that a little bit, the global development system, in a sense of how do you then concretize that and turn that into something that's achievable, a vision, a set of objectives, and you know, actually dimensionalizing the system that you want to change, how it would look like? Yes, it's a great question. So there you have to be quite strategic because there are some points of influence that we identified that we thought would be particularly helpful. And again, our goal was to move governments and private sector. And so one of the first things that we did was we wrote a paper called Eyeglasses for Global Development, Bridging the Visual Divide. And we framed our issue area as not a health issue, but as an issue of global development. 
And we made a very compelling case based on great research and studies that were out there and collating all of that information to the fact that uncorrected vision leads to $227 billion of lost economic opportunity, has a huge impact negatively on education when kids can't learn, or rather when kids can't see, they can't learn. And we showed all the research around that. We showed all the research around the link between vision and productivity and how when someone gets a pair of glasses, it can double their working life and it can increase their productivity by 30%. Uh, We looked at the research around vision as an influence on road traffic safety and how 59% of road traffic accidents had a visual component to it. So we framed our issue area as not a health issue, but as an input to other critical global development goals that had already been addressed and already recognized on the global development agenda. Then we wrote that paper with a strategic partner in the World Economic Forum. So it was published by the World Economic Forum. We got to present it at Davos, and we were able to provide this information to leaders in both the public and private sectors. So that was really a critical strategic move for us. That paper, when it became published, then enabled us to uh, present it at other places. For instance, we presented it at USAID. We were invited to present it there. And in our presentation there, with other efforts, the other big area of concentration was to influence the U.S. government. Because if we could move the U.S. government and signal attention to this issue area through recognition by the U.S. government, as a leader, we felt other governments would follow suit. And so a big core of our work has been trying to influence the U.S. government in recognizing this issue area as important. And I'm pleased to say that within two years of working with them, we were able to get language in this state foreign appropriations bill around the importance of eyeglasses to education. And over time, that led to just this year, for the first time, actual line item in the state and foreign appropriations bill. And so for the first time ever, we now have a line item. It's two and a half million dollars. And once a line item gets in there, it gets in there for good. So we anticipated being there for a while. And in speaking with influential people on the appropriations committee, they feel that there's much room for growth there as well. So that's just an example of how we've started to get the global development community engaged in this issue. Yes. Can I ask, Jordan, how does a systems change mindset? change the way or influence the way you approach this particular question. You talked about the, you know, the steps you've taken, the report and so forth. In what way does having a systems entrepreneur hat or systems perspective influence and allow you to be effective? It's critical. I can't tell you the difference in terms of our acceptance when we went around the different offices of the U.S. government, from the House of Representatives, people from the Appropriations Committee, to people at the USAID Office of Education and other places, that when we came in as a neutral broker, as an organization that was representing the issue area and was representing the people, if you will, on the ground, the children and adults who we described, who were falling out of school and work because they couldn't see, rather than representing our own self-interest as an organization to grow our particular approach, representing also, in addition to the end users, the, the field writ large, the government people were saying, oh, it's so refreshing. We, rather than having 10 organizations in your space hit us up, 
it's much more convenient. It's much easier to work with one organization that represents all of them. So the systems approach was instrumental in not only getting the meetings, but getting the meetings to go somewhere. I know that there have been many organizations trying to get appropriations for this issue area more on an individual basis and even hired expensive lobbyists to do so and haven't gotten anywhere. And so for the first time, again, there is now a line item for eyeglasses because we broke out of the approach of representing one organization, but rather representing the problem writ large. Very interesting. Can you talk, Jordan, about the optical sector itself, the network you've put together? And again, in terms of looking at this as a system, what were some of your observations about this system? What were some of the goals that you set to, you know, to influence change within this system? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about the question of getting a network to align, to share a vision and those details, which are very interesting indeed. Yes, those are very important. So Alliance is a membership organization. We have about 60 members and we started with mostly the people in the vision space, both the for-profit and non-profit organizations in the space who had interest in solving the problem. We also have some members from the education community, from the road traffic safety community, from the labor and productivity communities. So we are trying to build the coalition that reflects our strategies, which we can talk a little bit about. But we did start at the core of our membership with the organizations that have historically been interested in this issue area, which are a collection of NGOs and for-profit optical sector players. And so that was really important to bring them in. And again, what we were saying to them, and I think it was also super important before we even started Alliance, we engaged them in a conversation around is there a need for an organization like Alliance? Because we had envisioned it, but before bringing it to birth, if you will, we wanted to check in with the community of practice to see if they thought there was actually a missing need for something like that. And so we convened them in Washington. We had about 35 or so people from that community represented. We also had people from USAID and the World Bank and others because we wanted to start to cast the issue into a broader light as well, and to show the NGOs that we were starting to think this way. So it was a very good meeting, and they said, yes, there seems to be a need for this, but under a couple of circumstances, we would like to do this but. And the but was, but you have to actually do something. You can't just you know do advocacy without actually action. And two is we also want to make sure that you don't go after the same funders as we make our budgets work with. And so you have to bring new resources into the issue area, not just dip into the same old resources. And so that was sort of our marching orders was to really find our niche and do something that was different and additive to what the community was already doing and to find new channels of resources that we could put into it. So that was the earliest engagement with the NGOs. And then that sort of led to us putting this paper together and that paper was really done, although my partner Liz Smith was the principal author of that paper, it really was a collection of the NGOs who were in that room that we were mining for the information that we put into the report. So it was a report that really represented the entire ecosystem that we were bringing together. And so they all felt that the recommendations and objectives of that report 
were in line with what they were thinking. So that was an important building of trust. And then once they saw that we could get that paper written so beautifully and under the imprimatur of an organization like the World Economic Forum, we were off to the races. Yes, you mentioned the word, uh, very important idea, very important value is trust. Can you talk about the importance of trust when you're working with a range of different organizations with different values? Well, we often talk about uh, the currency of system change work is trust. Without it, you're not going to get anywhere. All the organizations you're bringing together and the systems that you're trying to change have to deeply believe that your efforts as the secretariat, if you will, are in line with what they're trying to achieve and additive with what they're trying to achieve and not working at cross purposes. And one of the reasons why we rolled Alliance out of Vision Spring pretty early on was that it became very clear that in order to have trust, you had to have sort of that neutral broker stance. You couldn't be embedded representing one organization in an effort of many. So yes, trust is the currency and it's something that is only built by open communication, consistent action, and often leading from behind and putting the members out in front. For instance, we were instrumental in getting a front page New York Times article placed about a year ago. It was a wonderful article. It was the front page of the Sunday New York Times above the fold. We couldn't have gotten a better kind of placement. And we were able to get six of our members mentioned in that article. And so that was uh, the kind of thing that helps build trust when they see that you're working for them and putting them out front. Excellent. Excellent. I would like to discuss maybe one other system a little bit, but can I just ask a little bit about how this network operates in the sense that, you know, how do the communications operate? How do you organize it? Is everyone talking to each other? Are there some conveners? How do you make that work, Jordan? There's two parts to iLions. The first part that we already talked about was our trying to influence this issue area to get recognition on the global development agenda and to make it more central to the global development agenda. And that's one area. The other area that we work in is what we call our evidence labs. And that's really where we work in country. And that's where the rubber hits the road and where we really work with our members most closely. So I'll try to answer a few questions at the same time. So one system that we're trying to change is the system of education. It's very clear that if a child can't see, they're not going to learn appropriately. And right now, there is no national effort in any country that systematically provides vision screening and eyeglasses to all their kids. And so one of the systems that we're trying to change is the school system, particularly the health system within the school system to ensure that kids get vision screening. And for those kids who need it, they get a pair of glasses. And so we are working with the Liberian government now to create such a model. And the reason we've chosen Liberia was one, we got the opportunity to meet the president of Liberia through a friend of ours, Raj Punjabi, that introduced us to her. And she very much recognized immediately the need And then the other thing we saw was that we had a few of our members in country. But meanwhile, one was in the southwest and one was in the northeast, and they didn't talk to each other. They had no idea what the other was doing. The governments didn't even know each one existed doing the different work. There was no connective tissue to it. Uh, There was also a lot of um, 
issue areas that weren't represented in their expertise, like supply chain management. And so we looked at our membership and we said, you know, who's in country already solving the problem? What skill sets do they have that we can build off of? How can we better coordinate them? And then what skill sets are missing that we can bring in from our membership that we need in order to create a national school eye health program? And so we brought in about four or five of our other members, and now we've got six members working in Liberia with the both Ministry of Health and Education to create a national school program. In Liberia, there are only two eye doctors. Virtually no children had glasses in the entire country, except for a few around the capital city. And within a year, we have screened 50,000 children. By the end of next year, will have screened 58% of all Nigerian children. And by 2021, all 1 million children will have gone through that screening process. And those who need glasses will get them. And that's the power of our coalition, where we are all acting together in a concerted effort. We're bringing in the skill sets that are needed. And what makes it particularly powerful, and this gets to the system change, is that Liberia is one of 65 countries that has access to something called the Global Partnership for Education funds. So the Global Partnership for Education is a multi-billion dollar fund that is available to 65 countries, some of the poorest on the planet, to fund their education sector. And we are working now with the Liberian government that by 2021, for the first time, there will be a line item in their education sector plan for vision screening and eyeglasses. And if we can make that happen in Liberia, the president has said, former president now, has said that she will go to other presidents across Africa and the world and talk about it. And then we can get our membership to take that whole concept and all the blocking and tackling that's needed to get the governments prepared to incorporate vision screening into their national school health programs and get access to this global partnership for education. So we have a downline payer. We have the necessary partners and skill sets to drive these nationwide school programs. And that's just a great example of how thinking larger, thinking nationally, thinking globally, and then putting players together who have the skill sets in a concerted way, thinking along the same plan can make a big difference and we can get there much faster. Can you talk about your overall systems change model approach, Jordan? Yes. So as I said earlier, the key with our system change approach is to take innovations that are bubbling up from the NGO community systems, or rather strategies that we know work, and embedding them into the public and private sector. And so we have two broad strategies. We've got a two-pronged strategy in the private sector and a two-pronged strategy in the public sector. On the public sector side, one of the strategies that we just outlined was around the school system we want to make sure that every child, we see it as a public good, that every child who needs a pair of glasses should have them. And the best way to do that is through the public school system and through the GPE payer model that we outlined. The other public system model that we're working on is that, as you know, many countries have quite a robust community health worker model. And some of our members, Vision Spring and others, have pioneered the ability and the knowledge of how to enable community health workers and, if you will, low-level health workers to responsibly screen for and distribute simple reading glasses. And so we're working with also the Liberian government and hopefully soon the Pakistani government to embed 
a vision component into their community health worker models. And if that works and the governments take that on, then suddenly we have access to millions of distribution points across the planet for our eyeglasses. So that's the public model, both on the education side and the community health system side. On the private sector side, we have a two-pronged model too. One is through optical retailers and the other is through last mile distribution. And in the optical retailer place side, we're making some really great progress. We did a global scan to identify entrepreneurs who had successful, profitable businesses that were serving emerging middle class and base of the pyramid consumers. And we found a wonderful entrepreneur, Hugo Moreno, from a company called Verde Verdad in Mexico, who had a profitable business. More than half of his customers were first-time eyeglass wearers, so he was expanding the market. And he, his market was the emerging middle class and BOP consumer. And he had started with one optical store. He had already built it to 100 when we met him. And he recently has now has financing to go to 300. And the question was, how can we take that model and accelerate it across Mexico, but more importantly, get it to replicate across Latin America and then other parts of the world? And so we've engaged the Miller Center at Santa Clara University to be partners with us to basically create a blueprint of his secret sauce as a business. And we've codified all of what has made Ugo successful. And now we're starting what we're calling our Entrepreneurship in Residence program, where we're bringing in three entrepreneurs, one from Peru, one from Ecuador, one from Chile. And we are going to be basically training them, spending time with Mr. Moreno in Mexico to create their own business. Now, the idea here is not only to create these successful businesses and scale them faster, but also to start to crowd in development financing. Because we feel if we have enough of a momentum, we can actually create a sector of business. So for instance, off-grid solar 10 years ago wasn't a sector that the development community or impact community was financing. Now billions of dollars go into off-grid solar. And we feel um, the optical sector is one such sector that if we can enliven it by these scaling, these social enterprise models, these inclusive business models, we can crowd in development financing and impact investment in a whole new way and really scale very quickly. And the last area is through last mile distribution. We're part of the global distribution collective. That part of our model is still we're working on the strategy. But there are many points of distribution, you know, millions of kiosks and pharmacies that uh, could easily sell eyeglasses. And some of our members are already creating some successful models around that, that we can scale through those last mile retailers. So that's a quick overview of our system change model. Very full agenda, multifaceted and multi-pronged. Thank you, Jordan. I'm just wondering, can you talk a little bit about the leadership role within iLiance and how leadership is different, I guess, from within a social enterprise in its own right? Leadership, as you know, is challenging at every level and no matter what the organization. And it really boils down to trying to get people to follow you. And what we're doing at iLiance is we're trying to, again, put the problem up front We're trying to be practical about the solutions. We're trying to make sure credit is given where credit is due and not take the credit as much as possible and give it to our members. Leading a social change movement has a lot to do with 
leading from behind, but also creating a strategy that everybody can get behind. So in a way, if you can come up with the vision and the framework that is compelling enough for others to follow, then once you sort of put that up front and you get people engaged in that agenda, then you can start to fall behind and let them take the lead. But it does take quite a bit of leadership to craft that global strategy and bring others along so that it becomes their strategy. And so one of the things that we're doing now to help facilitate that is before we were mentioning the first paper that we wrote called Eyeglasses for Global Development, Bridging the Visual Divide that we published with the World Economic Forum. We're now working on a second publication. The first one really represented the why. Why is this issue area important? Whereas this next paper that we're working in is, is the how. So now that we know that it's important and we've demonstrated it and we've got the U.S. government behind it, and we've got others, and we've got the largest company in the world, Estelor, behind it, largest eyeglass company in the world behind it, how can we now take that goodwill and create a concerted strategy that everyone can get behind and so that we as a community are firing all on one cylinder? That's a large part of that leadership is having people come on board with the one strategy that they can all get behind and play their particular roles. So each organization in our membership has their own superpowers. Some are going to be better at helping us with the education side of it. Others will be better at helping us with the community health worker side. Others will be more helpful on the private sector side. How can they plug in their superpowers to the overall vision so that we're all working through our best strengths? It brings up, I guess, the question of when you set goals of systems change, a little bit different from setting them within a social enterprise for a social entrepreneur. And that ties into the question of funding. Uh, many funders want to see very you know, clear targets, clear goals for what uh, you're going to achieve as an organization. Can you speak briefly about the challenges of funding for systems work and what your insights are? <laughs> yeah. So when we started Vision Spring, we were very fortunate because when we started it, if you look at the whole ecosystem or the field of social entrepreneurship, it was in its sort of infancy. And Vision Spring, if you use a surfer analogy, hit the wave perfectly. We were really well timed. And my supposition when we started, when Liz and I started iLiance almost five years ago now, was that we were going to hit a similar wave with system change. And that we would be really well positioned to ride it out and money would come flowing in. Unfortunately, the system change wave is taking longer to crest. There is a lot of interest for sure. And there's a lot of rhetoric for sure. And there's a lot of discussion for sure. But when it comes down to funding system change work, it's very common for the funders who have historically funded social entrepreneurship, at least to sort of fall back to their old metrics of dollar in, impact out. And that becomes very difficult sometimes with system change because you're moving these giant ecosystems of government and business, and it's often hard to say dollar in, dollar out. If I said to a donor, give me X number of dollars so I could get a line item in the U.S. foreign appropriations bill, there's just no way to do that. We just happened to be able to pull that off, but there was no way to 
represent dollar in that kind of impact out. And so there is a disconnect now between the practitioners of system change who are trying to think of things differently and approach things differently, but then are being, if you will, forced to, when they're starting to write proposals, to write the same old proposals of, well, if I give you X dollars, you're going to have Y results. And that has been challenging. So the good news is our budget has grown each year significantly, but we are far from where we need to be because we need to start raising tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars, and we are not close to that. It's a challenge, but I am optimistic that if we keep plugging away and we have the kind of results that we're getting with the U.S. government as an example, with the Liberian government as an example, and with um, Verde Verdad in the private sector as an example, we will start to see some good flows of resources coming in. But uh, to date, it's been really challenging. Work in progress. We'll talk to you about that again, hopefully, Jordan, see how you're getting on. Maybe just can you say where are you headed now, the next few years? What are a couple of key goals for our alliance and what are you hoping to achieve? I think the real key goals are system change is necessary. The work of our members across our board are necessary, but none of them is sufficient on their own. And that if you are going to have a system change movement, it's imperative that you have members who have models that are scalable and that actually work. Because if we are successful of getting the hundreds of millions of dollars into the space that we need and we start to deploy it, we'll only be as effective as the models that need to be scaled up from our ecosystem. And so that's where the really the rubber is going to hit the road, is that how do you take these models that exist within pockets of your community and match them with deeper resources and institutions that can scale those models radically and do those models hold up under that kind of pressure. And so a lot of the work that we're doing in our evidence labs is to test that, is to test these scaling pathways and see how realistic they are and see how far we can go with them and see what other tweaks we need to make. So a lot of our work is going to continue on that two-pronged attack. One is the evidence labs in-country, both on the public and private sector side, as well as keep at it with our advocacy work around getting more governments and multilateral institutions to recognize the critical importance of our issue area to the global development space. And another area we're working is to get the message of a book that I just wrote out into the world. The book is called Dare to Matter, Your Path to Making a Difference Now. And the reason I think this is so important is because as humans, we have two fundamental drives. One is to care for ourselves and our families, and the other is to care for something larger than ourselves so that we leave the world a better place because we're in it. And the question is how to integrate those two drives. So as social entrepreneurs go out into the world, they have to think about that and often their lives get out of balance. And so the book is to help social entrepreneurs and others figure out how to both care for themselves and care for the world. It's a full agenda, Jordan, and very important work. And I wish you the very best of success with your ongoing projects. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time and great questions and hope the listeners will have learned at least one or two valuable things. I think that was a great interview. And very rich from a systems perspective. What stood out for you in this interview, Odin? First of all, I think Jordan is a great example of how you can achieve system change as a social entrepreneur. 
We invited him to this first episode of our podcast series because he moved from a more traditional growth-based approach to a more systemic approach. So let me focus on that. Three points really stood out for me. First, even though Vision Spring was super successful, they only reached a fraction of the people who needed eyeglasses. This is true for so many social ventures and the number one reason why social entrepreneurs want to shift their work to a systems level. That doesn't mean that the direct impact of Vision Spring doesn't have value. It just means that on a systems level, the achievements lie in the learnings that they can share, the credibility that they can use for network and policy work, etc., rather than only the number of people that they reach. Systemic impact came with publishing papers and influencing the White House, which is very different from reaching another 10,000 people directly. Second, Eyelines is a great example for an organization that has a big vision, eyeglasses for everybody who needs them, combined with more specific goals and specific systems, like putting glasses on the international development agenda, including them in national education programs and systems of community healthcare workers. We call these goals targeted systems changes. And targeted system changes make for great linchpins for impact strategies. In fact, at Globalizer, we invest several weeks just to identify the right system change goals for our strategy. And finally, the great work of iLines is only possible with a group of actors. Just imagine one small NGO trying to get these new line items into the US budget. It might not be impossible, but the cross-sector alliance certainly has more credibility. And this approach requires a different type of leadership. Jordan called it leading from behind. We call it weaving and openness. This aspect is so important that we are going to devote a whole episode on it. Thank you for listening to the Ashoka Systems Change podcast. We hope you found it interesting. If you enjoyed this episode, please do help spread the word on social media. And also, we would love it if you could leave a review on iTunes or whatever platform you use. If you'd like to find out more, please visit ashoka.org. The opinions in this podcast are personal and do not necessarily reflect Ashoka's position. Nothing said in this podcast should be interpreted as investment advice.